No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and this week on the program we have part two of my interview with Brenna Galvin. If you were interested in listening to part one last week, you got more of a background on who she is, what kind of her experiences growing up were that led her to be an elder law attorney and now a certified death doula. So this is part two of the interview where the rubber meets the road and we talk about how she got certified, what that actually means and how she participates in the dying process for people today and then how that has impacted her understanding of the world around us. So um, hopefully if you got something out of last week, this week is just phenomenal. I loved this. This was when I was talking to Brenda. You can hear at the end where I'm like, I'm cutting this up into two episodes because this is so much information and it's so awesome. So I was very happy to be able to do this. Um, Additionally, I want to say thank you to everyone for their patience while I was traveling last week. I know the audio quality while I recorded the intro in the hotel room was not stellar, and that's kind of the cardinal sin of podcasting is having crumbum audio from just talking into your laptop. So thank you for your patience with that. I know it was kind of... uh, You know, a day late, not my proudest moment, but frankly, I was traveling and able to really enjoy some time with my better half out west in Seattle, and I just love it out there. It is the coolest place, and there's so much good food, and the atmosphere, and just the environment is so amazing. I just love the Pacific Northwest. I love Seattle. It was a phenomenal time with my better half, so uh, thank you for your patience and not lighting me up on social media for being a day late on the episode. Additionally, I am, well... I'm certainly always open to feedback and uh, letting me know what you think of what I've got going on here. Send me an update. Send me an email. Send me a tweet or a message on face or not Facebook. Not going on Facebook, but uh, other social media platforms. You're dead too at Gmail or at You're Dead Too. Uh, please let me know. Love to hear from you. Love to hear what you're thinking. And in particular, I'd love an opportunity to do a listener feedback or question. Um, response episode where people write in with questions and I can just answer them in bulk, you know, en masse on the podcast and hopefully get some clarification out there about who I am, why I'm doing this, what I've, you know, gathered from this, what what all this perspective could be. So I'd be more than happy to do so and I'm not going to put a time pressure on it. So people just send in questions and I'll do my best to answer them however I can. I think it'd be really fun. Um, Beyond that, I just want to say thank you for listening. It always means the world to me that anybody uh, from strangers to friends to family would take the time to listen to this. It just blows my mind that anybody beyond me wants to hear this because for all I'm concerned, I could be talking into a void and I would get just as much satisfaction out of this. I think there's good introspection to be done from, uh, well, introspection, I guess. There's the snake eating its own tail. But point is, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I hope you've got some thoughts as well. Let me know. Uh, Tell friends and family whoever you think would be interested in hearing this podcast. Otherwise, if you think you have a guest that would be interesting to hear from, let me know. It's the only way I'm going to know. So with that, I will stop ranting and raving, and I will let you get right to part two of my interview with Brenna Galvin. Thanks. Over a period of time and felt close to her and dreamed of her, right? Is that purely the brain or is that something else causing that that dream to happen? And I am both infuriated and enthralled with the notion that right. never gonna know. Yeah. It's just this this magic trick of just it is both mundane 
and profound. I love that you described it as a beautiful process that I think there are people who would view from the outside what you're doing, what I'm attempting to do, that it's somehow profane or... Um, Grotesque. Yeah, yeah. morbid, mm-hmm. that it's some kind of sick fascination. But no, there's really, again, it's a universal constant. All right. things begin, all things end. This is part of the the dance that is all of this Mm -hmm. that is undeniably a part of it and part of the story that your whole life is going to tell so it's nice to hear that you've got such a duh she's in the business (laughs) like (laughs) yeah of course you've got good feelings about it right um i there are two independent tracks that i'd like to go down Mm -hmm. one is what is required to become a death doula and the others i'm going to save until i want to go down that route but i want to I'm making it clear that there's a demarcation point here. So before I get to that stuff, <laughs> right. what um, what's required? So what yeah. you recently, this summer, were in Colorado for the final part of it. I know that. But what what does the entire journey look like from a distance? Sure. So doulas in general have many different training modalities, right? There's birthing doulas. There's now end-of-life or death doulas. Um they have lactation doulas, they have grief doulas, right? There are, and the really the common thread is you have someone who has some medical or professional expertise in this, but they are not that, right? They are not your doctor. They are not they are a resource, um, a partner, a companion in this process, and their sole focus is to focus on their client and that that client's experience and so um for end of life doulas right now there's one larger entity or governing body called the international end of life doula association so i n e l d a and I'm trying to think if that's a cute, punchy word. I don't think it is. Inelda? Inelda, yeah. yeah. <laughs> dignified so, foreign woman from Europe. Then. Right, right. <laughs> so Inelda started um, by really people who had kind of a handful of people who had really incredible experience working in hospice or um, – with doula training, social work, hospice, and psychology, and personal interest in the area. And they said, man, it'd be great to know more about this and learn more. And their all of their many years of experience enabled them to put together trainings and materials on it. But it's not. And it was a, it's a small group of people who created a big organization And by big, I still mean there's right now not too many people who have actually been marked as certified end-of-life doulas, right? So many of us, like me, have gone through this training, and their organization also requests that you submit case notes for a series of patients that they review and walk through with you and serve as a guide on. Wow. And then once you've done that, they will give you your certification but that's one entity yeah that's not um a larger body right it's not like every master's student right gets 
their MA through X number of credits or course load or completing this dissertation. It's not the same everywhere you go or get training from. And so there's also a college in Vermont that's offering online classes for it. And I intend to do that as well, only because I feel like what's wrong with learning more? Yeah. At the worst, you have additional knowledge and you're out X amount of dollars. Exactly. And so at the end of that program, they do give you a certification, but you've had um, no marked experience with clients or patients either at the end of that, but you've gone through their training and their expertise has been shared through their training models, right? And so I, there are also end-of-life doulas who've just put in hours and experience and had a background in maybe um, chaplains or hospice care or nursing homes, right, or personal familial experience at end-of-life and they're holding themselves out to be end-of-life doulas. So the answer is you don't have to go through any formal training, hmm. but I sure think it helps. And <laughs> yeah. I, I think that if you care about doing this work well, you know, some training is, is beneficial. It's really nice to know that there is what I perceive to be this view of the modern world getting ever worse when I know that's not the case, but the ever-growing bureaucracy of, you know, well, we did all the steps right, and yet this still happened. Like, you are the person stepping in to say, I know that my role technically ends here with this set of documents here from the legal standpoint and the documents over here with the financial planner that this is all... But what does the actual individual do to continue this through line? And you are the person who is bucking that supposed trend of the further, you know, yeah, computerization just, of the world. That right. you are stepping in as a human to yeah. guide fellow humans through this process. Right, right. I think that there is um, so much that we pay for care, right, in certain ways. Mm. And so much of how we care for individuals is dependent on the mechanisms, the money transactions, right? Oh, God, yeah. And so what I see for my clients is, of course, there are incredible hospice care providers, and hospice is often paid through Medicare, and Medicare is kind of our federal health insurance for people who are seniors or people with disabilities, and hospice is provided through that. However, it is not inpatient hospice, right? It's not um, round-the-clock hospice care. It is someone going out multiple times a week to check in, make sure the medications are managed, make sure that they can answer questions for families. And if somebody is uncomfortable or needs additional resources or wants to explore life meaning or what happens after their life or their fears and concerns, They can access a chaplain who will come visit them. And there are these things that are enabled through the Medicare system. But there are gaps, right, between Tuesday when the Medicare nurse comes, or pardon me, the hospice nurse comes that's paid through Medicare, Mm -hmm. to Saturday or Friday when they come back, right? And Mm -hmm. meanwhile, the family is doing this dance of saying, gosh, she looks uncomfortable. I think I, we should medicate her more. And maybe I'm doing that because it's really me who's uncomfortable, right? Sure. Um, we, we don't know because 
we're not trained experts and we're left alone in it a lot of the time. And so most hospice is paid for through this modality that doesn't allow it to be truly holistic, right? Yeah. Or if you want that, the cost of it is just so great that not everyone can afford it. So Yeah, and I don't want to get on a soapbox about how, well, if you've got money, anything's possible in this country if you just stop being poor. Yeah. Right. So there's a wonderful place that I always say that um, there's a inpatient hospice facility not too far from when I where I work and live, and I'm like, goodness, if I was at end of life, I would want to go there. Kevin, to here die. is my yep. place to go. <laughs> right, it's wonderful. You know, they have music therapy and art therapy, and they bring dogs in to sit with you, and they'll it smells like cookies when you walk in, and you know everything is um, incredible. But the cost per day to stay there equates, if you were there for a month, to be about $15,000 for a month. So if you break that down into a daily rate, now, most people do not stay there for a long period of time, right? Yeah, the intent is not to go there for six months as you slowly, like, it's like a week before. Right, right. But I would say that um, there is a good portion of the population who's just priced out of that sort of care and so such horseshit it's i think that again it shows a lot about our society about how we um, care for people who are at end of life who are aging and who are have disabilities Mm -hmm. and um i so much of it is based on the uh capitalist nature of where we live right and that's just the reality that goods and services are being performed and there's exchange of money for that and so (laughs) i i think that there is a hole and a place in which there can be wonderful hospice care providers that's such a gift to families already and is provided for but also another resource for them to navigate through all of this and somebody who might be more accessible during the active dying process, um, you know, in the last uh, 48 hours or 36 hours of um, someone's life. Um, so y- are you, when you talk about building a space for somebody or holding a space for somebody, it feels like from the description that you are acting almost as a no, I suppose that's not really right. I was going to think of like a hub to a spoke for wheel, you know, that you are the access to if they need to talk with a religious figure or somebody else, a mm-hmm. um, financial planner that's more of the, the legal aspect of your professional side, that um, you are a facilitator and a guide. Are you spending like concentrated times with these families of like right. several days in a row of like this is what I'm doing or is it like I'm going to check in an hour a day every day until this happens like how does that right. typically break out I think that it depends on how people um, engage you right for the services so they're the kind of model that you're taught through in ELDA is that there is the planning process right where you somebody might have a terminal diagnosis and they've met with you and they're part of the planning and they talk to you about some of their wishes regarding how the physical space operates, what their fears and concerns are, what 
they want and don't want and you get some of that knowledge right and part of your role then is to help them explore some of these things like life legacy or if they want to work on some of this regrets or unfinished business guilt shame you can do that work or you have time to do it and then there's the active dying process which is at the end of life when our bodies are actually shutting down they're doing what they know how to do And typically during that process, you're with families more frequently and often end of life doulas work together. And so they might do, they might work as a collaborative or a team where somebody takes a four hour shift and then the next person comes in. And so you have someone who's there throughout the process. (laughs) Yeah, because it's very, I mean. Do you have a partner? I right now I my partner who's an end of life doula is actually in Phoenix so she and I aren't doing this trade off but there's quite a few in Minneapolis which is an incredible thing there's a lot of end of life doulas in Minnesota Interesting probably a higher concentration than many states right now Any particular reason you chalk that up to I don't know It's cold and dark and we die a lot Yeah yeah I think rate. that um we do have really Minnesota is a great place to live and a great place to die Hmm. and I say that because I go to these national conferences with end-of-life doulas but also with elder law attorneys and we hear about their systems in other states and their care and the types of care that's offered and access to it and barriers to access and Minnesota has um, its own host of troubles and concerns with it but Overall, the types of care and the types of places that we have accessible to us are pretty incredible. And so um, I think with that knowledge and having that system of um, care in place here, it's extended or allowed people to explore more of how do we do this better? How do we make sure that... um, I always think of it as kind of a a diagram, and I didn't make this up. I saw an incredible TED Talk at some point where a woman explained, you know, as we age, we often think that quality of life is going to decline, right? There's If there was a XY graph, right, Mm -hmm. the line would be going towards... Uh, the negative, right? Yeah, that inherently as the physical body somehow diminishes, the quality of life also by nature would be diminished as well. Exactly. And I think that what I love about this concept and um, end-of-life doulas and the work I do is saying, no, that's not actually what has to happen. We can explore quality of life, right, without not just from a, oh, we're aging and our physical bodies are changing, right? Quality doesn't necessarily mean that um, we have to be functioning in the way we know our bodies now, right? right? Yeah, you're not going to anticipate being the starting quarterback when you're 75 and close to the, like, yeah, okay. Right, so I think that, and I think that as everyone ages, people recognize that, right? You wake up and you're like, oh gosh, this creaks a little bit more, or I did this work in my yard and I'm more sore, or yeah. <laughs> um, I had too many drinks last night and it's taking longer for recovery, right? Mm-hmm. Our bodies change mm-hmm. over time. I think that we naturally in our culture say, ugh, 
I don't want it to change like that. We right? worship youth. We yeah. worship youth and we hide aging populations and yeah. people with disabilities. So for that reason, um, I think that it is very important to explore opportunities where we put that or take away those myths and offer kind of a care to people. So you have this to go back to kind of the different ways in which end-of-life doulas can um, provide care. A lot of times they're working in just those, that active dying. We might not have had the benefit of doing all the planning, but we might get called in from the family and say, this is happening and we need someone in this role now. Are you available to do it? And you can still offer a benefit right by your depth of knowledge and by figuring out what the family's concerns are and the comfort level of the client you're serving and things that can alleviate some of their pain and enhance their quality through the dying process and make them more um, comfortable in the process to go as smoothly as it can go. Hmm. And then the other part critical or important to all this is that you can um, really work with people to reprocess their grief on the back end. And so death is one of um, the greatest or biggest life experiences that all of us face that none of us are going to remember, right? Or if we do, we don't know in what way we're going to acknowledge it or know it to be true, right? Birth and death are both huge pinnacle points in our lives that none of us have the tools to unpack and digest and think about, right? Do you think that it's an evolutionary adaptive technique to prevent us from experiencing it white hot, like right there in the moment? Do you think that that's similar to forgetting all of the painful notions of childbirth that my wife is kind of... Yeah. Right, right. I don't I I don't know because I just feel like our brains right when we're first born aren't able to um know exactly what's happening to us or we can't recall them as we get older, right? Mm-hmm. I don't right. uh remember that I was I know from my mom's story that I was breech and I've been a pain in the butt literally ever since I was born, right? Uh-huh. But I don't know um I don't know what it felt to come out or have to have an emergency C-section, right? I don't know that experience. I know the stories that my mom's shared and my dad's shared or our families discussed about that whole birthing process. And that's similar to death. It's Those are two times in our lives that are the two biggest moments that we might ever have or experience, but we don't have the tools to talk about them or share what we've learned from them with others right we don't have we're not a player in it after we're gone like i said before it's a real black box moment of that something goes into it something happens we'll never observe it directly firsthand without being irreparably changed right that you can't shy of some john malkovich get out style (laughs) shenanigans you'll never experience being born and being able to talk about it and dying beyond specific circumstances and for if anybody listening wants to find out more about that's like listen to the episodes about brian 
Mm -hmm. uh, where he talks about that specifically. And recent guest Brenda Hartman as well talks about her own experiences passing away and coming back to life. I mean, but before I go down that road, does your role typically end with death? Or do you stay involved through the funereal... Right, right. So... Um, end of life doulas can typically they stay on through the what they call the first couple sessions of reprocessing grief, which is really our role to help the survivors or the loved ones that we might have worked with and sat with closely um, to look at what happened. And if there are memories that, for example, they might have that are more painful than others to talk through it, maybe help them reframe it. Um, because they, it's normal for us in trauma, again, to hang on to certain moments of that. But it's we might not be able to say, oh, but there was also this really beautiful thing that happened. Do you remember when um, you took out the guitar and started playing their favorite song, and they kind of became a little bit more conscious and engaged. Do you remember when your sister flew into town and you were able to sit and share stories about your favorite moment with dad, you know, um, and do some of those, that assistance to say, these are some sacred or beautiful moments that happened throughout this dying process, or this is exactly how they wanted to go, or it was the best that we could do, or whatever it is. Or it might just be saying, yeah, I can imagine that's really hard for you right now. So it's the first stage. Again, we aren't, um, we're not going to be their therapist, but we are going to be a person who witnessed this thing with them and to sit with them in that. And so some end-of-life doulas really focus on just the care of the body after the death or active dying to that immediate body aftercare for how do we handle it, home funerals, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's another area where naturally when I started learning about this, people, some of their first questions for me was like, are you going to touch the bodies after they're gone? (laughs) Right? It's all focused on... The physicality of it, the the profane thing left here. Like gross. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a body, and apparently the soul's gone from it, and or whatever we believe, the it's life is gone. It's a corpse. It's no longer a thing that we love. It's a thing that we're scared of, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so a lot of end-of-life doulas or death doulas have focused on sitting with people at the very end of their lives, then planning... Um, their their home funeral services so they're not just shipped off or brought to a um, back in to a medical model yeah um because often what happens is if your loved one dies at home it's only natural for people's instincts to call 911 yeah but then first responders come and take the body or the um, they tell you to call the funeral home and they come and take the body away, right? And there's some really, um, I was a little uncomfortable too just because you do have these biases. When I first heard about 
this handling, oh gosh, I don't know if I'd want to do at home funerals when I first learned about it. And then I was like, what a beautiful opportunity for people that were there who were moved and touched by this person to care for that body, to be around it, say goodbye with not a time frame that they were pushed out of the hospital room or told, okay, it's time, you know, we've got to Insurance is billing. We right. gotta go. We've yeah. gotta go. This is a room that we need to fill with someone else. Mm-hmm. You're taking up space here. Right. To really say in their own time, okay, I wanna say my goodbyes, I wanna care for the body and and we learned about washing a body in in our training. And that was again something I was like, could I do that? Of course you can, right? Of course you can touch and be close to a body. Um, and by doing that, sometimes it's very beneficial for the family. And it's one of those things that sometimes you plant the seed, like we could do this, but it's going to take people time to ruminate about and to figure out their own feelings and, mm-hmm. and fears and uncertainties about it to figure out comfort level. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we learned about, um, for example, holding a body, it's very, it's been proven when you're both giving birth and dying, right? That full body holds can be very therapeutic to the person, right? Mm. So I know um, this might depend on your preference or enjoyment of physical touch. Yeah, but there's some people who are like, don't touch, stay Right, away. exactly. Don't touch me at all. Yeah. But I'm someone that probably the best thing you can do when I'm mad or anxious is to come embrace me, right? And give me a full hug and surround me. And I find that very calming. And so in times of discomfort, it would only be natural. And for me, that could come from anyone, right? There are very few people that I'd be like, oh, don't, please don't come into my physical space. Now, if you see Brenna on the street, listeners, find her, (laughs) hug her, especially if she's not anticipating it. Seek consent, I think. Maybe ask. Yes. This would be a quick Me Too lesson. Right. I'm not soliciting lawsuits. Okay. So that being said, I think that it's something that clients or their loved ones are a little uncomfortable with the idea that, you know, you can crawl into the hospital bed with a person and and embrace them or um, hug them. And that can alleviate some of the physical discomfort that they're feeling. Wow. And so, again, science and studies show that 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 has improves people's dying process birthing process it makes them far more comfortable through it but it's something that all of us are like Ugh, would i feel comfortable crawling into my i was loved just one's gonna say bed? it just just you mentioning that now i felt the squicks of like mm-hmm. wait wait a minute why does that but i tried to catch myself like why does that seem inherently weird right but it's just it's a it's a cultural bias that we've put up without anticipating putting it up it's it's grown there as a weed and not as a planted flower that it's it's a byproduct right and it's removed from us right we we die in sterile places that Mm -hmm. um, are cold and we're taken away and we don't have to exposure to it and you're right touch isn't typically part of that and um and washing the body is not typically part of it, but there are these things that I found myself even doing when I was reading the material or uh, doing the class in advance for the in-person training, the online component of my class, and was like, 
wow, why am I having this reaction? What, what is my fear or why am I responding in this way? Um, is it something I want to continue, right? Is this a belief that I really do hold or do I want to challenge that in some way and explore something else? And so you can imagine that the people who are drawn to end-of-life doulas, <laughs> the field of end-of-life doulas are a very interesting bunch that uh, <laughs> endlessly fascinating, but also pretty open to saying and exploring their own deep work because my therapist said it best before I left for this when she said, you know, Brennan, to do deep work with clients, you have to be willing to do deep work with yourself, right? And so if we operate in the surface level arena of like we're only willing to scratch this surface and it's too deep or we don't want to touch that because – touching it might expose something about us it might make you think or feel things right. and that's got to be wrong that feels wrong right let's let's bury that or box it up tight yep. and nope, put it nope. deep right get a little thing from target and just yeah, and just, yeah <laughs> you can get a thing. decorative basket with a cover mm-hmm. right um but i think that it, it makes for an interesting group of people not all of them share the same interest right some people have a great interest in the planning some people have a great interest in the grief or reprocessing grief. Um, the at-home funerals, the active dying process, there can be different specialties within it. And that's why you might see people team up or pair up. And um, You haven't got like a grizzled veteran who's one day away from retirement as a partner. It's <laughs> somebody who's also like-minded like yourself or of a similar right. ilk that you feel like it's well what was fascinating is i've been really involved in this national academy of elder law attorneys and last november i had been actively looking at registering for trainings uh, i had heard about end of life doulas on a podcast actually and was like this is the magic sauce mm-hmm. this is what i've been missing and i i want to learn more and As I was doing that, I went to this conference with a bunch of elder law attorneys, and I went out to dinner with my friend from Phoenix. She and I both own our practices. We're similar ages. Um, And she said, I'm about to do this really crazy thing. And I said, tell me all you can. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know details now. And she said, I'm getting certified as an end-of-life doula. And I said how perfect I'm doing the same thing like and again we met through our shared fields and experiences and what we're putting together is really resources that people can use um, online if we can't be in person or if uh, people need more information on end of life death dying the process um, or want to talk about it more and don't know how to have those conversations tools that people can use so she's actually coming into town tomorrow and flying in from phoenix so we can continue our work on um, that project together so uh will to be continued as that develops and it's really um, wonderful to find someone but i think for my clients and for what i want to do with the end of life duel and how it plays in with my elder law practice is that likely I'll have to team up. I won't be able to serve as someone's 
24-7 point of contact in their active dying process. But um, how do I put them in touch with really good, like-minded people? Yeah, people you who can I trust. trust. Yep. Who share my philosophies and training and can really take it and run with it um, if I'm not available to do that too. And so I think that like many fields in end of life or dying, because we all die, right? There's a business around death. There are people, there There should be a, actually a bigger business around it. Because, yeah, it's kind of amazing there isn't, frankly. Right, right. We have historically let that happen again. If it's the care is happening in a hospital or a medical setting, and then the body care after death happens in traditional funeral homes. And um, that's it. There's not a lot of in-between. And so, again, this is kind of an arena to to explore that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to stop right there and say thank you for all of this because this has all been hugely informative and a wealth of information that I never would have had access to. We've talked in a very... Um, it's interesting to see how... I've gotten a different take on you through all of this versus previous encounters because this is a much more measured kind of, you're a little more careful with, like, I'm actively trying to get that reaction out right. of you now. So let's let's diverge quickly then. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a personal standpoint, what do you think happens when we die? I think we go on. Some kind of change that, is there a change? Do you think this just something... I, I'm not looking for an answer. I'm just wondering right. what do you think happens? I do believe that we go on in this world or another or our energy goes on. I think that even if our physical bodies as we know it aren't here, we leave this world having had an impact, whether that be small or large whether that be um, something in holding the door for someone or um, rewriting, creating the internet, you know, whatever it is that we do with our lives. I think we, um, by just merely being here, have left uh, an impact on the people that you, um, that survive you. Yeah. And so from uh, what happens to us when we die, I think so much of it within this world as we know it is um, measured by our survivors, right? But I think for us individually, I I do believe that there is um, something else and that um, it might not be, I might not know if it's a traditional heaven or if we're reborn into, you know, an animal or another person or uh, a child across the globe I don't know in what ways we go on but um partially from my work partially from my spirituality partially um from my experiences and my own family and with my own friends in it we just because someone dies does not mean that they're gone now right their physical bodies aren't here but they're very much alive and everyone you've left and I think that I feel you feel 
presence of people often, even when they're not around. And I think that, um, I guess the woo woo part of me definitely believes in the empaths and the communication with others and, um, definitely believes in that. Now your woo woo (laughs) part, I'm not just going to let that go by. (laughs) Is there more to that than the past, you know, hour and a half of conversation would let on? Is there more of a love and light and crystal vibration side that you're not really revealing? Or is that... It's not that I'm not revealing it. I just um, want to be sure that, you know, when I'm, as I said before, when I'm with people or with clients or... You don't want to put your taint on it? Right. I want them to be to know that whatever they believe is okay and will be supportive. But for myself um, and what I believe, I definitely think there's a crystals and vibes, good vibes (laughs) portion of it, you know, and I, I like a full on Scientologist. Is that what you're telling me? No, but you're going up the rainbow bridge. (laughs) Uh, No, I, I'm not. They wouldn't let me in. with enough money they'll give it to anybody right right um but i do think you know my uh, i have an aunt who definitely is an empath of sorts and my cousin and i were together recently this spring and he shared a story of one of his friends who's um they think of more as an empath and he's never had that sort of relationship or communication with her, right? He's just been her friend for a number of years and he was really struggling um, in the last couple of years with what he wanted to do and finding a career that fit for him. And he uh, called his friend and was talking to her and she said, you know, I have to tell you that I, I just have to tell you that somebody has been trying to communicate with me and he's been grabbing his chest and he's had um and usually that means that they've had a heart issue and um he's out in a in a field wearing all blue and it's got to be your grandpa joe you know it's got to be him and my my cousin heard that and he had been really entertaining this idea of pursuing uh the fireman's academy and wearing all blue that's their uniform and that was the the thing he needed to know that um, to get the guidance about the what's next. And within a year from the date that happened, he was admitted into this fireman's academy and was able to do this and really turn his life around to figure out his own mission and that sounds funky to people. I think if I'm in a certain headspace, that might sound, um, my belief on that might change. Yeah, depending but, on what time of day and how much right, coffee you exactly, had. Exactly, exactly. But I think that if we're open to the messages that the world puts in front of us, be it from someone proclaiming to be an empath to someone who can can trace life meaning through different threads or, or pinnacle moments or um, through people's stories of guardian angels in their lives or people who have come in and, and left this touch who have really watched out for them in some way. I don't think any of it's wrong and I don't think it's bad as long as it's been beneficial to the person who's receiving it. 
right? I don't think it has to be right or wrong or no, yeah. or bad or good or or woo woo or um, it's proven not, by yeah. data, right? The benefit is for the internal person. It's it's yeah. not for as long as it's not affecting how you deal with the world in a, in a you know repercussion. Yeah. So I, this is a loaded question, and I have my own assumptions here. Uh, any experiences with ghosts? <laughs> so spooky. No. <laughs> um ghosts so personal experiences i don't um i don't think that i've had fears about ghosts right over the years but i haven't had times where i've said um oh this person i feel haunted or i feel like i've seen this vision or the same thing over and over again um but I do think that there are times where we enter space and we feel an energy, right? And we feel something, we have a physical reaction to it. Yeah, I've shared a similar be... experience on this podcast about right. just like, I don't know what that was. Maybe it was bad wiring that wasn't properly grounded mm-hmm. or like a gas leak that only I was smelling that. Right. But something of an energy. Of... Yeah. We, we can get smells that there's signs. I know people who have said, I always smell this um, scent of jasmine when I go into this place, but there's no jasmine around. There's no spray, you know, it's, yeah. um, or I feel like I've seen this thing over and over, um, or I've seen it once and it was meaningful or frightening to me because a lot of what we don't understand is scary, right? That's a, I joke yeah. about it being so spooky <laughs> because I think that um, that's we, why it's scary. Right. It's unknown. It's and somehow... our brains do are naturally programmed from when we are babies to figure out similarities or things that are like us, right? So from when we don't know who or how to process the world, they found that babies can still identify faces, right? And they still know that this is a human thing or Mm -hmm. this is like me or um, those biases or those um, intrinsic um, recognition, right, happens from birth. Yeah. So we feel that and we look for it, right, as in whatever age we're at. So if we feel something in a space if we feel an energy it's only natural for us to associate a human form with that that's right? a very good point yeah we we're looking and we're hungry for that human connection yeah we're hardwired to find faces and things and as a result we, we see a shape in the darkness and we think who is that not what is that right right interesting and so i think that it's from a psychology a strictly psychology or brain functioning method yeah it makes sense that we we do this now I do think that there's stuff to reconcile, right? We don't have it all figured out about how um, how can I believe that my grandfather, who's been deceased for the last 30 years, is communicating with my cousin, right? And how can I believe that um, we go on in some shape or form and not believe that there might be um, a, a physical presence or some sort of otherworldly presence around us? I'm saying that I just... It's not that I don't believe it. I just don't, I don't know. And that's okay with me. Um, That's why I like you. Yeah. (laughs) So having shared all of this, Mm -hmm. thank you. 
this is absolutely Thank awesome. You. And this is long enough just so that you know I'm actually going to be able to cut this in half just because okay. I like to keep the episodes kind of a sim right. length yep. ballpark. So this has been – you've been so awesome to share as much as you have that I, this is easily two episodes of oh. stuff. So thank okay. you. Is there anything – as we wrap up here that you would like to impart to people of like just uh, in Minnesota, I always say just like work on the zipper merge or like <laughs> any one thing out there of like people should read this book or mm-hmm. like look into this or just maybe put down your phone for five minutes. Any particular right. thing that you'd like to put out there to the internet right. at large? I have said this a couple of times, but I truly believe that we need to talk about end of life we need to talk about what it's like to live in our bodies as they change we need to um, be open enough to hear the information that's being presented and so that might mean uh, putting down your phone right it might mean that we um, don't shy away from these tough conversations but I think that us doing so is going to mean that we all live better so if we die better we're going to live better too and so um let's kind of work together to reshape how we think about death and dying very cool brenna galvin thank you very much Mm -hmm.